Welcome back to the Daedalus Workshop. You know where we are. We're reading the People's History of the United States. Uh, today, this is going to be part two of chapter 16, titles, uh, titled A People's War. That does not talk about World War II. I mean, we're talking about World War II. <laughs> yeah, we are talking. A little bit. We get to talk a little bit about it today. There's not as many blood and guts as you'd like. You're a big blood and guts guy. But, yeah. You, you know, want the guts. Old blood and guts. You want the intestines falling yeah. out. I hear you. <laughs> Just give it to me. Yeah. But it's not happening. Uh, old blood, blood and guts over here. I'm I'm Jason. Sitting across from me is Ethan. I know he hates the introductions. Yeah, but. Ethan's a civilized one that doesn't want to see anybody's intestines fall out of him. <laughs> Uh, uh, man. So, what are you getting into lately? I need a more specific question. Yeah, we, last time you were like, "I hate the how you doing." So I didn't ask that. I do. I this is still a broad, sweeping, general question. Yeah, just uh, you know what? Whatever piqued your interest in the last week? Anything at all? What piqued my interest in the last seven? Days, again, that's what piqued your interest. Do you have, do you have an like? Do you have an answer for that question, dude? Always, what, always. What piqued your interest in the last seven days? Oh, I know because we, we were talking about this before yeah. we got into it. Yeah, I I enhanced my YouTube algorithm and watched way a ton of videos on bonsai trees. So what, it's an art form that I'm think I'm super uh, appreciative of. What's the weirdest thing about bonsai culture that you learned? Uh, nothing like that yet. It's it was so far. It's just been a lot of uh, videos, either of galleries. So it's literally just like looking at trees during gallery shows, or of some guys talking or demonstrations. So they do like a live demonstration of bonsai tree, or guys like breaking down kind of like certain techniques or like kind of the art form at a at a more basic level for like a beginner. So, uh, oh. One, I don't know, uh, this hasn't been explicitly stated, but one thing that seems weird is some of these bonsai trees get very, very expensive because they'll be like a couple hundred years old, Yeah, uh, which is one of the things I'm really liking about it. The idea that it's an art piece that over survived a couple hundred years as a living piece and, and is today how it is because of the work of multiple artists and like caretakers. It's like a natural really cool. cathedral. Yeah, yeah. But, but one that each artist, each generation of artists actually gets to like make changes to because it's always growing. So you have to actually put, you, you get a chance to like add dead wood to it, shape it and yeah, all sorts of stuff. It's perpetual because it doesn't stop. Yeah. But yeah. I always thought it was interesting thing about cathedrals where it took multiple generations to finish them. Yeah. Yeah. And so you would have that generational, but, the, but it does end at a point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's a construction process. For, I get what you're saying. Yeah. So, um, Oh, what's interesting is some of the most expensive ones. I don't know if they actually ever sit in a person's home or if they just, they live at like a nursery that takes care of these bonsai trees, like that specializes bonsai master. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then just kind of do road shows type thing. Think like, like an art piece that is owned by a wealthy individual but is on almost perpetual loan to an art museum. But that museum is a bonsai nursery, and occasionally they take it on roadshows. I mean, if you're wealthy enough to buy a multi-million dollar bonsai tree, (laughs) you can probably afford the the master as well to be just live in-house, like you're in-house chef. 
Yeah. He's got your in-house bonsai master. Well, it makes sense that they can pay for it. To me, is just the, the, I don't, I'm a terrible collector. Like as a kid, when I learned that like comic books could be collectible, I knew I just felt despair in me. Like I will never make money doing that because I can't not touch it. Like mm. I, I paid money for it. I worked for the money. Like I mowed lawns for the money. I earned the money. I took the money in. I bought the comic book so I can read it. And I'm going to read it and I'm going to get snot all over those pages and like Cheeto dust and all sorts of stuff. And that's like how I love something. Yeah. I insulted my grandparents one time at Christmas because uh, they they bought me, um, I don't know, a fancy replica truck, old, old timey truck. And I immediately ripped it out of the packaging. Oh, no. And they were destroyed because you're supposed to put it on your shelf. In the, pa- oh, in the packaging. Yeah. And I... I, I I didn't put it on the shelf. Didn't, never made it to the shelf. Yeah, they thought they gave you. Just a, went straight to the dirt. Sure. Yeah, um, I did think it was interesting in the last seven days that uh, not only do people spend millions of dollars on bonsai trees, <laughs> people also spend millions of dollars on JPEGs. Oh yeah, with the whole with, NFT. Yeah, yeah. The I that was a, tokens. I thought that was a very interesting story and an interesting, uh, an interesting lens on what property is. Oh yeah. We thought we had a hard time in this series pinning down like the concept of property. Now it's in the world of a hundred percent like it only exists in the digital space. And like the public the public space. Yeah. Yeah. And but you can uh, have property rights over it apparently somehow. Wild. Wild world. <laughs> wild, wild world. Yeah. So last week uh we covered the beginning of World War Two, this week um, it's me short and sweet trying something a little different, a little shorter episode. If you like it, let us know. If you hate it, let us know. If you don't have feelings, don't let us know. This week we'll be talking about fascism and whether or not it spread throughout the Allies as well as the Axis. Um, so let's zoom in on one policy that was enacted on U.S. shores during the war. Quote. In one of its policies, the United States came close to to direct duplication of fascism. This was in its treatment of the Japanese Americans living on the West Coast. After the Pearl Harbor attack, anti-Japanese hysteria spread in the government. One congressman said, I'm for catching every Japanese in America, Alaska, and Hawaii now and putting them in concentration camps. Damn them. Let's get rid of them. Franklin D. Roosevelt did not share this frenzy, but he calmly signed Executive Order 9066 in February 1942, giving the Army the power, without warrants or indictments or hearings, to arrest every Japanese-American on the West Coast, 110,000 men, women, and children, to take them from their homes, transport them to camps far into the interior, and keep them there under prison conditions. Three-fourths of these were Nisai children born in the United States of Japanese parents and therefore American citizens. The other fourth, the Isai, born in Japan, were barred by law from becoming citizens. In 1944, the Supreme Court upheld the forced evacuation on the grounds of military necessity. The Japanese remained in those camps for over three years. Michi Weglin was a young girl when her family experienced evacuation and detention. She tells, in years of infamy, of bungling in the evacuation, of misery, confusion, anger, 
but also of Japanese-American dignity in fighting back. There were strikes, petitions, mass meetings, refusal to sign loyalty oaths, riots against the camp authorities. The Japanese resisted to the end. Not until after the war did the story of the Japanese-Americans begin to be known to the general public. The month the war ended in Asia, September 1945, an article appeared in Harper's Magazine by Yale Law Professor Eugene V. Rostow, calling the Japanese evacuation our worst wartime mistake. End quote. At this point, Zinn now asks the question that has been looming behind these paragraphs, these pages, and these chapters. Quote, was it a mistake, or was it an action to be expected from a nation with a long history of racism, and which was fighting a war not to end racism, but to retain the fundamental elements of the American system? End quote. This question is important and worth dwelling on, but I want to come back to it. Like Zinn, I think we should save it for the end. Our first task is thus. Did fascism appear on our shores? Okay, first I have to ask, how are, how are we defining fascism? How do you want to define it? I don't know. Uh, I don't have a firm grasp on definitions of these, like, is, this a, is fascism a system of government? Is it a system of politics? Is it is it a, um, and in that, it's in some ways, is it like using force? To enact, like a willingness to use force to enact policies? Yeah, I think force is, 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 a, is a strong it's like key. like a required part of fascism? Um, I think a required part is that it's a right-wing movement. I think that's one of the, that's probably the, like the first part of the definition is that fascism comes out of the right wing. Um, I would say the way that I think about it, but it, this flows from the way I think about politics, is like the right is focused on uh, maintaining order, the left, you have more so progressive, more, I'd, I'd use the word chaos, but not chaos in a negative sense necessarily. And um, order and chaos can both go too far. Mm-hmm. So I think about fascism in politics the way I think about when I walk in someone's house and there's like plastic on the couch. And you go like, this is too much. <laughs> like, this is just, this is not necessary. I yeah. get what you're trying to do here. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've, you're going too far. Sure. So I think fascism is um, a like super attempt at creating and maintaining order, which yeah, dictated through force, through authoritarian means, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which could fascism appear from a left wing organization? Yeah, yeah, probably. Uh, but that would mean that organization probably isn't really left-wing in its value system it's probably more pretending to be left-wing see and this is where it ends up confusing me because like i thought the further right-wing you go the smaller and smaller government that you're willing to accept and support right but for a fascist regime to be in place it requires a significantly sized very strong government to be able to like because generally like a police state would be considered part of like a fascist regime yeah. Being able to act out. Because I always thought, I, I don't think, I, don't, well, this, know. I this, don't know if this is correct in any way, but kind of a funny world where if you go right far enough, and you go left far enough, you have like the ultimate right wing where it's like, yeah, it's no government. It's everyone just like doing their own thing. You go far left. Yeah, it's perfect communism. There's no government. It's everybody doing their own thing. And they all, it's just, it's on, you're on a globe. So you just, you just walk to the South Pole together. 
Yeah, that's funny. I, and I agree with that. Because I think the thing that gets missed a lot or doesn't get um, laid out necessarily is like the libertarian dimension. Yeah, yeah. Whereas libertarian is definitely the, the, the no government, the small government, small mm-hmm. as possible. Um, so there's, um, I can't think of what it's called, political compass maybe? You ever seen that where it's quadrants, yeah, it's like, the four quadrants? Yep, yeah, left, right. And they have an up and down dimension as well. Libertarian and is it up and down authoritarian versus? It might be authoritarian versus libertarian. Libertarian. Okay. Yeah. 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 And fascism is like upper right. Fascism would be upright. So it's authoritarian and right wing. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. So, okay. So fascism, best we can describe it. um, Overprotection of cultural values and using a large military state and threat of force to enact those. I think that's a fine definition. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll kind of work on that. Um, Okay. So we have that. Is that then the question is, did that show up in the United States? Uh, Specifically with this policy, we're saying uh, the Japanese internment camp, which at the outset, (laughs) terrible policy. That was a, that was a great tragedy of, uh, World War II on the American action side. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know on that. You, you know, outside without being able to answer the, the fascism, maybe we can get there, but yeah. One thing, he, uh, Zinn says in here, he talks about after Pearl Harbor attack, anti-Japanese hysteria. And I think that captures more of what drove this act than, uh, I don't know, than, than anything else was just like fear, uh, terror of there's another great, the, the great war turns out that was the first one. We have another world war happening. Uh, we just got hit at, at home in Hawaii, so close to our shores, by a, a, a very aggressive, strong, nation. strong world power. Yeah, that this was this wasn't the first time they showed up. Like they had been doing their thing in China and in the Pacific. This was just they hit us for the first time, and um, I don't know. I think people freaked out. I think they panicked, and they. People do really dumb things when they pay. And it's not, you know, I said, and I think I'm going to continue to say this, that I think fear is the health of the state, that the state relies on fear from its people. Um, Because when it can, when it can stoke the flames of fear, people are willing to give over more power to the state. So the state can become larger and, and exert more control. And when you're using the word state, you're using this in a a negative way. Yeah, well, yeah, the, in this way, it would be like the government of the United States, uh, specifically, yeah, for but, this uh, case. Yeah, and yeah. If, but if someone's listening and they like government, they would disagree with the fundamental yeah, yeah, yeah. definition of state. <laughs> right, yeah, they would. Keep going. <laughs> Fair enough. Keep going. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, so uh, they need a certain level of fear in order for people to be willing to give away more of their rights to the state so they have more control over your life. But 
the state, the government is made up of individuals and there are individuals within that government who have uh, like significant control over the various departments that there's so many we don't even know how they all interact and what they're all allowed of. And those people can get scared too. And in a period like World War II where, uh, I don't know, I, I have to I have to imagine that there was a good amount of just panic that led to terrible, terrible decisions. And I think some of that is backed up by just how the United States has uh, genuinely I think they literally apologized for the internment camps and paid a significant sum of money. Um, not that that completely makes up for it, but like has owned that as like, yeah, that was a terrible mistake that we made. Yeah. I believe that, that. That's my understanding as well. Yeah. That this was not like, this was not a feature of the system. This was a, this was a mess up and we are sorry. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know if, if it's as much, uh, a political ideology bleeding over. Although some of it is right. Cause Cause, it's nationalistic. Cause in here's, a sense. I mean, here's the question is like the whole idea of Hitler was mm-hmm. a political movement at first. Yeah. And Hitler was obsessed with order and cleanliness and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. At what point did Hitler's movement become fascist? I guess an interesting question. You know, I'd have to mm-hmm. read a text to really think about that. Yeah. Did it did it originate as fascist? Yeah. It, I also find the word hard to say. I, I never <laughs> fascist. Exactly when to put the sh in. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, did he did Hitler have fascist aims and goals from the get go, or was it just this continual focus on order that resulted in that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. What at what point does order go too far because we because we agree that the internment camps was too far it was too much control the question is at what point does the too much control become fascism and granted that's just a word we use to describe well and that's where something we don't like i think i think that it was almost like a fire with fire mentality so they were afraid um People making decisions at the time were just terrified, terrified that there might actually be infiltrators from the Japanese empire already on our shore, like a hundred thousand of them potentially. Right. So they do the dumbest thing possible and they throw them all in internment camps and concentration camps. Now on the positive side, they did not start mass murdering them, but they borrowed a tool from their enemies, quote unquote, well, no, it was literally their enemy from their enemy's playbook in ostracize a, a people group on your soil that you can easily point to and like other them and remove them from the population because there might be a tiny chance that some of them could do you harm. Um, well, so I, I think, and this is the question, right? Cause like if we were watching, um, some sort of like legal drama on television and there was a lawyer and there was a criminal. I think at the point the lawyer starts borrowing tools from the criminal's kit. Yeah. You go, he's going too far. I agree. He's he's operating outside the bounds of the law and mm-hmm. he's corrupting himself and he might not be able to come back from that. Well, and I think maybe I'm over, uh, maybe I'm having a hard time like sinking my teeth into this because I have like, 
it's so acknowledged that like, yeah, that was a terrible thing. That shouldn't have happened. Yeah. And there was, there's been attempts made to pay recompense for that and to do better and be better. And, uh, yeah. So yes, it was a bad thing. We like, we, the United States appears to have borrowed a page out of the Axis powers playbook, but that was recognized and they, they unwound it best they could. Yes. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to be in the, the time frame before that was unwound. Yeah. The moment where there's an internment camp out West. Yeah. And the war is still going on uh-huh. and nobody's sure what happens next. Right. Okay. So at what point is that hyper order that has appeared? Uh-huh. And it's hard with the word like fascist because well, I mean, when it's you're such putting a on, loose word. When you're putting people on buses because of their country of origin and disappearing them, yeah. you've gone too far. Yeah. <laughs> if ever you see just lines of people from the same geographical region lining up to get on a bus and they're not wearing tourist shirts and taking pictures... And you never see them again. You should be concerned. You might. You should maybe be a little concerned. Yeah, and like, I mean, all of your fighting force is. I mean, I I don't know how many troops per se, how many fighting men mm-hmm. are are still in the states to protect the homeland. Sure. Yeah. Right. Because like you have a, you have a <clears throat> massive population that's overseas somewhere fighting. Yeah. And so, like, how many people that are the kind of person that are Type A dominant? get to stand up for yeah. what's right or whatever are around to try to put a stop to something like that. Right. Or to speak up against it. Everyone's too busy, you know, fighting. Yeah. Which then comes back to this idea of fear mm-hmm. as everyone's afraid. And so it becomes like the, the fear becomes the most important thing. Yeah. So, it, and I know we've both listened to Dan Carlin's hardcore history on supernova in the East. Yeah. Which, it's his, his current series, which is, Yes. 12 hours into and maybe another two or three coming. <laughs> yeah. And it covers the rise of Japan and it provided, um, I think it provides some incredible context and almost what's, what is it when, when, uh, when somebody does something horrible and you're not forgiving it, but you, you understand the context. I don't know what that is. Uh, you understand the context. I don't. I don't even know context, but it's like you. You know where it came from. Like, oh, I could understand how that would happen based on this, that, the other thing. Like, I don't know what that is. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know the specific word you're looking for. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm, I'm. I'm tracking with you. Sure. Like, so he does it's a, it's a lot of times. That's like empathy. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's what it is. Empathy. So, um, Carlin spends a lot of time talking about the Japanese culture. And especially when it comes to uh, World War II, their fighting culture. And he does an exceptional job, if you haven't listened to Hardcore History, you should, of kind of telling the story from the perspective of a soldier, both an American soldier, British soldier, Australian soldier, Japanese soldier, Chinese. Lots of blood and guts, intestines falling on everywhere. (laughs) Yes. Um, But he speaks of a level of brutality um, that was not seen otherwhere, other places during World World War II 
as a matter of tactics with the Japanese military. And he speaks about how anybody who had to fight the Japanese in the Pacific, any from any soldier from any army, would come back like different. It was like the veterans from the Pacific War, they hated the Japanese because the Japanese had particularly brutal tactics. And they were they were very good at basically directly attacking the morale of their enemy. They enjoyed fighting at night, close mm-hmm. combat. Yes. And they fought to the last man. It was ingrained deep within them. So even as American troops would be on march, they'd be walking past an area that was defeated. They'd be walking past dead bodies, and all of a sudden one of them wasn't dead anymore. They would jump up. A Japanese soldier would jump up with a grenade and pull the pin, kill himself and a few other soldiers. Yeah. So it was... Uh, yeah, it, I could see how, especially on the West Coast, where uh, most of the Japanese were, anyone who's coming back in between fights, and I, I forget the timing of all of this, but if some of those stories are coming home, that's going to breed an even deeper sense of like fear, hatred, animosity, where people, um, I don't know, people overgeneralize. So let me ask you this question then. What do you do to not let fear get the best of you? Oh, yeah. Cause, that's cause a great it, question. Because that's really what we're talking about. Like, yeah. I mean, at what point does too much order become fascism? Mm-hmm. Nah, they, like, who, like, it's sort of an interesting question, but fascism doesn't have any kind of like tight bounds to really right. wiggle around on it. Yeah, and if but I like, believe fear is the health of the state, and I believe that like the state uses fear to manip- manipulate us, well, if it can't make you afraid, Right, that would be part of my belief system. Is that if it can't make me afraid, it's harder for it to manipulate me. Well, it, but I, how do you not be afraid? <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't even say that because it could make you afraid. I mean, like you have a wife, and like if the, if the right, state shows up and starts pressing on your wife, there's like, a point. Yeah, there think, is right, a point. What, what do you mean to do? Mm-hmm. The question is like, how do you make sure that even if you feel fear, even in yeah. times of fear, yeah. how do you not let fear get the best of you? Because, I mean, the, the whole idea of the internment camp is people were afraid, mm-hmm. and we, we can talk that through and be like, there is some rationality to that. The Japanese were more than worthy opponents. Mm-hmm. They were a fearsome fighters. Yeah. And then there's all these Japanese that are on the West Coast, and so then it's like, do we have spies amongst us? Right. I mean, the next, the next portion after World War II is the Cold War, yeah. which is another time of long, long fear of the Russians. <laughs> yeah, and spies. <laughs> and spies. Yeah. Um, so that's, like, that, that, that's rational. Yeah. And then you come to the point of, okay, so let's scoop them all up, American citizen right. or not, yeah. and put them in camps. Right. And how do you how do you stop that? How do you make sure how do you that go, you, this is scary, but people still have rights. <laughs> yes. But my fear does not allow me to harm others. I, I don't know. Like, what do you do to, is it, a, is it having a strong sense of self? Is it having faith? Faith in in God, faith in a deity, faith in odds, statistics. What do you mean odds? Uh, like, like I don't I don't know how you would actually run the math on. Oh, what are the odds that one of them is actually spying? What are the odds they do any damage? I'm yeah, thinking yeah, more yeah. in like uh, risk calculations. Risk calculations, yeah. Current day would obviously coronavirus. So watching the statistics and like kind of. Judging for yourself, looking at odds, looking at the data available, what risks am I willing to take? 
uh, different, I know, for espionage and it, at wartime. But maybe it's not. That's the other thing that happens is it's like all... Once we talk about <clears throat> World War... Once we're in wartime, especially World War II, it's like, well, I had to win the war. No matter the so cost. Like, is, it's like, is, it, is it actually all bets are off? I mean, the reason laws are supposed to be uh, hard to put on the books that they take agreement from multiple houses of legislature and that there's the courts there to back them up is specifically so they stand up under the pressure of like a severe event like war under duress. Yeah. Like the reason we have rights written down is so that way they can't be taken away from us. Just anytime the state feels, Oh, well yeah. Like you can speak freely. Um, until like we get a little busy until we're stressed. Then you can't for a little while, but don't worry. We'll give it back to you later, which they don't always. Yeah, I was, I mean, um, I was even looking at, I underlined here. Sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Just how it said, not until after the war did the story of the Japanese Americans begin to be known to the general public, but it was a uh, hundred thousand. Yeah. 110,000 men, women, and children got disappeared. And like people didn't really know that it happened. Yeah. I mean, in some sense it sounds like, um, I mean, this is a kind of story where it's like the need for good journalism mm-hmm. because you need the people to disagree with the government to change the government's actions. Yeah. But the people have to have knowledge. Yeah. Which, I think which requires, you know, the role of a fourth estate that is functioning Yeah, and that is giving like, here's the facts, the best we got. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a thing, a thing today and they were doing the clip was a bunch of clips from like, well, it'd be mainstream media. So you mm-hmm. have Fox news on the right. They didn't go into OAN or anything like that, but then left CNN, MSNBC. And it was just like, I, I haven't watched any of those programs in a while, Yeah, but the level of speaking was just screaming. It was just people <laughs> shouting. Sure. Yeah. About Kamala Harris or this or that. And I was like, None of this are these aren't shouting voice topics. Yeah, but you can tell, like for me, because I don't listen to that I don't really like I don't buy into it. Oh, this is trying to produce fear. You're like trying to find a villain to have a narrative mm-hmm. and to try to make sure people are like all amped up, yeah. so they will then respond based on fear. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think fear is a very effective motivational tool. Yeah, and what's funny is it's so close to, like, euphoria and joy. I think, like, laughter, uh, when you feel, like, moments of, of laughter, you can't stop laughing. That's, like, a razor's edge difference between that and pure terror, which is why haunted houses are so much fun because it combines both. Yeah, it puts <laughs> you in that state of terror, even though you know there's, there is no real terror here. Right. You're there to have fun. And so you get scared and you respond by laughing. Yeah. Yeah. Now when it's uh, talking heads on TV screaming at you that you're going to die, you don't, I don't know. You don't get to like laugh about that because it's not like, it's not some scary clown murderer that popped out of a closet and then like backs in back into the closet and you're like, Oh, 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 that got me for a second. And then you walk on and, and move. It's, Okay, let me probe this metaphor just a little bit further because I like yeah. that. The haunted house idea. 
okay, you don't get to laugh about it, but there is a certain like pleasure and enjoyment that comes from watching the news where it's full of fear. Yeah. Do you think, do you think it's just watching someone you agree with and hoping that they like dunk on people you don't agree with? Is that, do you think that's where the joy comes from? Or it's more just like, I don't know, like the satisfaction of just hearing someone say, even in, even in an angry voice that like, it's okay to think what you think. Cause I think it too. Yeah. Probably part of it is like, you just get to walk away going, I'm right. Yeah. With a smile on your face. I'm right. What I think is right. And it's even like how you're saying it, like it might even just be like, okay, I'm right. It's calming. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. I'm not like, I don't, my, my, my fundamental moorings, like the things that I cling to as like my deeply held beliefs are not total nonsense. It's okay. Provides center to some people. I don't think it should. It's a bad but, center, but yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is a centering. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to um, go a little further into this. Into this um, Zin's thoughts. Um, so I want to return to Zin's final question that he asked. I want to take it in parts. Uh, Zin's argument, which has been laid across the last four hundred and sixteen pages, is that you can't call the rounding up of the Japanese a mistake. Of course, the scope of this question is larger than just these internment camps. This was more of an expected outcome. The way he frames it is that you have a nation with a long history of racism. I don't think that can really be argued against, but maybe maybe we'll see where we go with this. Um, but that leaves us with this last bit. Quote, a nation with long history of racism, quote, fighting a war not to end racism, but to retain the fundamental elements of the American system, end quote. So I think Zinn does himself a disservice by not laying out these fundamental elements. He leaves the door open because the question before us is which elements? What to choose is a priority. What goes in the top slot? Are America's fundamentals worth saving? Is it possible that these elements could be a fountainhead that produces an end or a near end to racism? Or does ending racism deserve that top priority slot? Is it a hill to die on regardless of what comes next? At what point does a system become too corrupt? At what point do you let a system die? Uh, I'm sorry, one sec. Oh, we had a bug. There is a centipede. <laughs> Did you feel fear? Uh, I will tear down the entire system to if it means centipedes no longer exist. I like, see, I like millipedes. See, oh, millipedes are great. Yeah. Centipedes, it's like the only bug I can't stand. But now it's gone. I am so sorry. <laughs> um, so we've talked about how, well, I know, I, I think the Declaration laid out of a, a vision of America, Declaration of Independence. That's like the, the ideal vision of America, equal rights for all. It was a vision of America that she didn't live up to at the time. But I believe that American history is a story of us making those incremental changes to get better. We were never able to do it all at once. But over time, we were able to make these incremental changes and get better and better and better. And that's like, 
So even in the story of the Japanese internment camp, and that's why I kept referring to how it's hard for me to like sit just in that time. Yeah. Because that was bad, but I know that it was acknowledged as bad and that tried to do everything we could to make up for that. Yeah. But we don't, we don't have any kind of acknowledgement today, right? We don't have the acknowledgement of history. What was bad? What was good today or tomorrow? Oh, what you okay. You're saying what uh, potentially, what are we going to have to apologize for tomorrow that we're doing today that we're unaware of? Or just of? in terms of like like talking about politics, thinking about what choices we make within mm-hmm. politics today, mm-hmm. there is no acknowledgement of what was good, what was bad. There is no, I mean, there's certainly there's plenty of disagreement, but like we don't know that now. But I mean, isn't that, isn't that what, where the disagreement stems from? That's like the struggle, like trying to find, um, trying to create a better form of governance a better a better tomorrow yeah is people spend a lot of times trying to define for themselves or for for their careers like what is good and what is bad and if they really really believe things and they're they're seeking good and they're involved in politics they're going to like go out and battle that out um you just i mean this is a case with the japanese uh, tournament camps where it was just like they did something that was so obviously bad like outside of what yeah like anyone would reasonably say was okay um, yeah I mean I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about reading a book like this not that I mean certainly we've had plenty of disagreements along the way across the 400 or so pages but there's been some things we've agreed on yeah this was this was bad mm-hmm Right, and so when you when when you can compile a list of a bunch of bad things, there is a reality there where you go, we can behave badly. Yeah, and that's not going to change. I'm not saying that we can live in a world where there is not going to be bad. Yeah, but of course, you want to make choices today to you, not behave badly. Yeah, you want to you want to not only make choices to not behave badly, but you want to make choices and set up for the future where like the next time we make a mistake, it's less bad than the last one. Yeah, and the idea of like I, I think that's what was interesting to me about this question of like did fascism appear on the shores is like is there an all I mean, you can write any kind of alternative history, but like I mean, how do you, like and that's what we're talking about. How do you turn away from that? You've got people in concentration camps. Yeah. How much more does it take to start killing them? Yeah, I mean, they're already in camps. Nobody really knows at this point. They'll yeah. come out later. Like, I mean, how close to that decision? That's did, a terrifying did, thought. Did, did we come? Yeah, that's terrifying. To behave thought. in the same exact way as you know the people we were fighting across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when yeah, it's like that's one of the things I like about reading this book. I feel like I'm I'm, I'm circling, but I'm going to land here. Is that like you have to face the potential of what could happen mm-hmm. a bunch of bad stuff has happened yeah it, it can happen again yeah if we don't make different choices you can repeat the things of the past it doesn't really give you anything to work with but i do i <laughs> well i because i agree with it too much i guess <laughs> sure <laughs> uh no yeah it's uh i did the worst thing i said no yeah yeah, no. Yeah, no, no, yeah. But it's it's what <sighs> kind of like back to the fascism on the shores, the there 
who do we lay that at the feet of, right? Like, yeah, we need to be better for sure. Who's mm-hmm. the we? Like, I have I have trouble. I always have trouble pinning something on like the American uh, system, the system of America, when it's like, well, who are the people that made those terrible decisions? Well, it's, those it's, are the problem. It's not specifically America. You're talking about you have trouble pinning the system of a nation. Yeah. Because, I mean, you could slot in any nation. It, it's the idea of, like, this nation, yeah, yeah, this yeah. giant thing. Right. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast today, and we were talk- they were talking about um, Plato and Aristotle. Yeah. And um, Plato wrote a, a text called The Republic. Aristotle responded to that with a text called um, The Politics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they, I mean, because like the word politics comes from the Greek word polis, which is like city-state. Yeah. Which is essentially like, it's like a city. Yep. And they didn't see their framework as being beyond a city. Yeah. They were aware of things larger, like um, the Empire of Persia, where there's also like, mm, I think it's called the the Delian League, the Delian League, um, which, which Athens, the city of Athens in Greece, um, ran... Like a real mini sort of like UN. It's like council of larger yeah. areas. Okay. Okay. So they had they had a, the they understood larger structures than just a city, but they didn't see um, they weren't like writing about things larger than city because they didn't see um, they didn't see the ability for humans to function well mm-hmm. beyond a city. Right. Which I think is interesting because a lot of times when we go back and we read these old texts. I think we kind of automatically assume that, well, we, we're in a nation now. Yeah, yeah. And so we just kind of take whatever theory they have here and apply it onto a nation. A nation. But yeah. you're right here because you go, well, who do you lay that at the foot of? Yeah. Versus if something happened in the city you live in, depending on the size of the city, because even some of our cities are, you know, not really cities. Yeah. Um, but if you're in, you know, we're both in the Midwest. If you're in a city in the Midwest, something happens you can go to city hall and like you might recognize the guy or the gal. Yeah. You can, you can actually lay it at the foot of somebody at a certain point. Sure. Things grow so big that you have no, I mean, like even in companies. Yeah. You lose your, if you, you work in a your big existence and if you work way. in a big company, when, what are you going to do? If you don't like the way, the way the company behaves, you have no actual authority. Right. If if you really don't like the way a company behaves, then you, you your best bet is probably just to leave. And that's I a hundred. That's it. That's the authority. Like that's the power there of the individual. That if you have, if you as a person have strong guiding principles that you're willing to to stand stand up to, then things can't spin out of control because enough people will just say, "No, I'm not doing that." Like yeah, there are always there are always like procedures and rules and whatnot that you have to follow, right? There's policies in place and they're there for a reason. I remember one time it was like uh I was living uh downtown when I was going to school at UWM, downtown Milwaukee. And uh and just like shitty little studio apartment. <laughs> and I came out to my car, it was in the wintertime. Came out to my car, it was a ninety six Honda Civic that was beat to shit it hadn't been stolen yet but it was a beat up ratty car and uh there was a parking ticket under my uh windshield wiper, and i was super bold because i had like no money 
So even just the $20 parking ticket, whatever it was at the time, $25 was like, yikes. Uh, that's hard to, hard to pay. So I grabbed it and I looked at it and it was just a note from the parking attendant saying your registration's out of date, which you can get a ticket for in Milwaukee. So that person who knows the rules, they know their job. They do their job very well in that area. I can assure you, (laughs) uh, for whatever reason, took pity on this random red 1996 Honda Civic and just wrote a note like your registration's out of date and I got it updated and never had a problem never got a ticket for that got a ticket for parking tickets for other things so that was a human being who knew the rules knew the policies knew the procedures knew they were well within their right to do the thing and they just made like a nice human choice in that moment I don't know why but it was very nice for me um, whenever we're talking about systems like these, the machine of the government system or of a corporate system, I have trouble oftentimes laying a lot of these evils at the feet of, of the government system or the corporate system. Uh, because again, like who are the dickheads that are making the decisions? Who are the ones making the bad choices? Now, I know there are toxic cultures that can exist that can come up. We've seen, we learn about them from the corporate side in business school all the time, where you can encourage and reward bad behavior, yeah. which just means you're toxic from like leaf to stem. Yeah, top down. Yeah. Um, but when it, that's when, when Zinn is questioning the, uh, like the the fundamental elements of the American system, I just, I have trouble with that because oftentimes we can look back in history and we can point at the specific people who made the bad decision. In this, it was uh, Roosevelt who signed the order. Like, he shouldn't have done it. If he didn't think it was a good idea to do, he shouldn't have given in to political pressure. He should have stood up on whatever he thought was right if he, if, uh, because it said Roosevelt didn't share in the frenzy. So if he didn't, if he didn't believe it, if he didn't buy it, shouldn't have signed it. Did a bad thing. Yeah, didn't share the frenzy and gave the army the power. Yeah. And I think that's, I think a big problem um, for all of us is that we watch our politicians do bad things and the only tool we have to fight back against them, to punish them, is to vote them out, and we don't do it. Because what if the other side gains the seat? What if the guy who did a bad thing is a Republican, and punishing him for that bad thing means a Democrat is in that seat? And vice versa. And then that fear... Enables bad decisions to continue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because um, there's some sense where, like, ah, this is probably difficult. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how many people would agree with this. Um, if you have a if you have a Republican, let's we'll play with this this thing. You have a Republican who's in office, yeah. and he's doing things that his constituents don't like. Yeah, but they're afraid of a Democrat coming in. 
And let's imagine that the Democrat was going to come in with someone that had a good record and was going to do things that Democrats liked. Yeah. There's like a utilitarian argument that that Democrat's going to do better and help more people because the people want what this person could do. And let's say if they do it, that helps people versus the person who's in power now who's not helping the Democrats because they don't like what he's doing and he's not even helping his own team. Yeah. Which then means no one's being helped. But the person who has the power is kind of safe. Unless someone allows the other team to come into power as punishment. Yeah. Which is which is um, not, in some sense, I'm sure, for, from the Republican vantage point, uh, the Republican individual who's voting, that's not just punishing that congressperson, yeah. but it's punishing themselves. Because you would be allowing someone in that you don't want. Mm-hmm. But how else does change happen? I know. I totally agree. And, and I think um, there was an instance not that long ago specifically on the Republican side, who was the racist guy? Mm, can't remember his name. I can make a lot of jokes right now. <laughs> no, I mean like like the like like in the clan bad or made like clan comments. Uh, oh man, I can't remember his name. Anyways, he was thrown out. Came up for election and like nope, and he got smashed. Like the Republican constituency didn't support him which was like that's great they didn't uh let lust for power um be the top priority on their list uh i don't know so i think zen like let's say zen agreed with this which probably would in some ways although you want to throw the whole system down but whatever here's what i think is fundamentally different about zen and i I think Zinn would want to use the government or use systems of power-ish, I don't know, to influence people to make better electoral choices, whether it's through, like, massive education programs or whatever. Uh, I just want the individual to be able to come to that on their own and i don't know how that happens okay but here's so here's a question right so the government like right now in today Mm -hmm. the government has a fair amount of power sure yeah so if the government was to reduce in size yeah and let go of that power i don't think that power is going to stop existing something's going to come in i mean whatever thing the government stops doing if you talk about like like the post office Mm -hmm. i don't know if that's the best example (laughs) then like you're going to have business Come in. Yeah, yeah. Take so, it over. So sure. you have, you, you, that's one of your choices. You, you have to make a choice between business or government on some yeah. of these things. Yeah. Because some of these things have to get done in some well, way. And a lot of the stuff when I'm, so oftentimes when I think of government power, it's not the people sitting in Congress. It's the bureaucracies and the administrative arms that write the rules that lead to the the expansion of the regulatory state that to me that's like that's like government's powers the regulatory state so when government steps back from that moves regulation 
It actually allows like individuals and private business a chance to actually like be more innovative. Yeah. Yeah. I think, but I think, I think what I'm trying to get to is that the individual doesn't really function in that place. There is no individual that's not running a company. Right. I mean, like it's in the realm of business. It's not Mm. in the realm of like the individual. That's what Uh, what I'm trying to distinguish. The regulatory gets to us in some ways. I I mean, I know it's going to be a a product base, but like the dishwashers we are able to buy right now are a byproduct of massive government regulations. Uh, (laughs) There was a big movement. He might have Trump on the way out of the door might have signed an executive order to try to make dishwashers great again. Something like that. I don't know. But basically. I've never heard that. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Modern dishwashers. Dish, modern dishwashers kind of suck because they're under certain restrictions as far as like how much water they can use in a cycle. And so they have to run longer, use less water, make it less hot. And like it doesn't clean your dishes as well. Um, and that's like. That's an impact on a person's like life and the time they have to spend dealing with their dishes as a byproduct of government control in their life whether they see it or not also just like your options on where you send your kid to school that's a huge one if you can't afford private school you're generally locked into whatever geography you live in that's the school you get to send your kid to and in that sense you're locked into whatever house you can afford or rent you can afford to pay based on the like the property taxes or the home prices or the the apartment the rental prices in your area so there again, you're geographically locked in certain school districts based on your income. I hate that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm trying to think about this. I think Zinn's concern would be with this kind of stuff is that when you reduce government, business steps in and mm-hmm. at the core of business is, is profit. Is the profit motive. Yes. See, Whereas with government, there's an auspice of yeah. <clears throat> something else, virtue of some sort, perhaps. The common good. Yeah, yeah, the common good, for sure. But it probably comes down to the profit motive. Mm -hmm. In my brain, that's like the the, the very bottom hinge. Yeah, yeah. And And related to that, then, is like, and I think that profit motive between him and I, where I think the profit motive is good, kind of like the Gordon Gecko, like greed is good thing. I don't know if I go that far. Uh, but to, to, to make profits, you have to provide something of value. Zen, I, the differences there, I think come about as like fundamentally different views on like human nature. What do you mean by human nature? Like would Zen say man is basically evil or man is basically good? Left alone, I think he would believe that man is basically good. If if left alone, sort of natural state. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of his stuff has been sort of um, I don't know what the term is Rousseauian, mm-hmm. where um, the um, the noble savage, which is sort yeah. of like a basically good, inherently good. Yeah, and I think. Uh, the simplest way to say it is like, I believe man is basically evil, but I think that has more to do with like chaos. I think chaos is the state of nature and what makes us better is bringing about order 
in our world. Yeah, so I mean, you go back to social contract theory in Hobbes, where if, if humans are left to their own, it becomes the war of all against all. Which, yeah, that's which a, would be probably similar to where yeah. you're saying no. And that's what like we have to be. And, and one of the things that kind of like the profit motive helps is it it plays off of that it demands order from even the most chaotic individuals. Where if you want if you want to succeed, you must provide something. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting to be 400 pages into a book where you can talk about kind of anything and then, I mean, you be, you begin to like, Zin becomes this like adjective we can use yeah, uh-huh. to, to put on the Zin glasses and, you know, look through his eyes, which I think is actually really interesting because I didn't have that ability before. No. I wasn't able to look through Zin's eyes at the world and interpret things a certain way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a valuable a valuable skill that I wouldn't have had unless I read 400 pages of this book. And I've never read a, a history book that so clearly leaves the fingerprints of the author, like in its pages, as far as like he believes this, yeah. that the other thing, like he's making arguments throughout it. He's not um, most history books. I'm sure uh, people who actually like study history or who really, really love reading history books. I'm sure there's tons of history books with lots of really good arguments. Just most of the ones I read, that maybe they're just hidden to my like my dumb eyes. I just can't well, the, tell that it's an argument. It just well, the ones like, we grew up with, the argument was America's great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just never saw it as an argument. <laughs> That's yeah, true. But it's structured in such a way that <laughs> yeah, it feels factual. It just feels like it's just relaying facts. Whereas yeah. Zen is, um, and we said this at the very beginning. One thing we appreciated about him: he doesn't hide the ball. Puts it on the table. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that was, that was a great discussion over a very tiny piece of this chapter. I think, uh, I think two pages of the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious what was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was fun. Uh, thank you everyone for coming out and listening with us. Uh, part two here. Um, next week we'll be doing part three of the chapter and we'll be talking about bombs. Cheers, everybody.